0: Psalm 19, we're in part two of what was gonna be two parts but is now three parts in Psalm 19. Something this good just can't be handled all at once. Psalm 19, we're gonna be specifically looking at verses seven through nine tonight, but let's read the first part too because it'll tie into what I have to say. To the chief musician, a psalm of David, the heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament shows his handiwork. The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. Creation is more than just a raw display of power and intelligent design. The Apostle Paul understood this when he said that Since the creation of the world, God's invisible attributes are seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they, meaning non-believers, are without excuse. And we talked about last time how creation is a revelation from God to man that speaks a language understood by the eternity God has placed in every human heart. Beginning in uh, verse seven, There's a rather abrupt change in the psalm. With no segue, David quits talking about creation's language and starts talking about God's inspired written word. I'm gonna suggest something that isn't said, but I think might be implied by that quick segue. To those who respond in their hearts to the general revelation of God in creation, God works providentially in history to bring them his word. If that is the case, then the transition from verse six to verse seven isn't such a leap after all. It implies that someone God has scattered out into the world who is groping for him and seeking him thanks to the revelation of creation will be brought further revelation by God's providence so that he or she might be saved or at least come to a point where they can make a decision for or against God. David has six names in these verses for the word of God. He calls it law, testimony, statutes, commandments, the fear of the Lord, and he calls it his judgments. We're gonna look at what David said as if God were bringing his word to someone who saw him through the revelation of creation and now through his providence has come into contact with his written word. And so back in verse seven, the law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. By law, David had in mind the first five books of the Bible. That's called the Pentateuch for five. But we'd include all the verbal plenary revelation of God in the Bible thus far, as well as all that was written under inspiration afterwards until the Bible was complete. And so uh, David meant the word that he had, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, uh, the law, but we can include the entire word of God in our thinking about what is being said here. It says here that God's word is perfect in every way, but especially for converting the soul. There is nothing else for converting the soul besides the word of God. Paul said that it is the power of God unto salvation. And so a soul that is seeking after the Lord in uh, seeing his revelation in creation who has brought the word of God has the opportunity to come into contact with salvation. When a heart has been drawn by creation and it meets up providentially with the word of God, bam, something happens. So this then would describe an ideal situation. The soul seeing God in creation and seeking God is brought into contact with the word of God and becomes a new creation in Christ. Verse seven goes on to say, the testimony of the Lord is sure making wise the simple. Adam Clark identifies the simple this way. He said, the simple is he who has but one end in view, who is concerned about his soul and earnestly inquires, what shall I do to be saved? Obviously, we would agree as Christians that is the one single most important issue in the world in in all of eternity. I love these, I was thinking about this today. you wouldn't know it to, to listen to me, to look at me, but I'm not very smart. I know you think I am, but I'm not. Uh, and um, there was something, I think it was on Facebook, about how ignorant Americans are of the United States Constitution. And how, uh, some of you probably saw it, how most Americans can't name almost any of the rights that are guaranteed by the Constitution. Uh, it's a, there, there's a higher percentage of people who just say, I don't know than there are in any of the categories like free speech or the right to bear arms or anything like that. And I, I started to feel bad because, you know, I think maybe, you know, I, I don't know that much about the constitution and uh, how would I do on that poll? And then I slapped myself and I said, wait a minute. If somebody asks you a question like that, say, who cares? I have a question for you. How much do you know about how do you get saved? There's a real question. Do you know anything about justification by faith? Do you understand grace by faith and and, uh, that you're a sinner and that Jesus rose from that? I mean, take almost anything that you know about the Bible and it trumps any other knowledge that people are interested in. I'm not saying it isn't important to understand the Constitution. If you carry a copy of the Constitution around with you and read it like Sean Hannity does, that's fine. I think that's great. I like to talk to you. You can refresh me on what's going on in the Constitution. And so I'm not making fun of any of that. That's important stuff. But bottom line, what must I do to be saved? There's a question that people need to have the answer for. If you're not familiar with Ray Comfort, how many of you know who Ray Comfort is? Great guy. Uh, I don't know what his website is anymore, but just if you search for Ray Comfort Christian, he's got all kinds of videos uh, where he goes down into parks and uh, out into the public and he does these man-on-the-street things where he talks about... Uh, contemporary issues like abortion and war and whatever from a Christian point of view. And he asks, puts people on the spot the way I'm talking about it, say, hey, what do you know about what the word of God says? And it's pretty fantastic stuff. And so, uh, so never get on camera. Don't ever be interviewed. And if you do say Jesus every other word, they will either not use you or they will hear you saying jesus of every other word and whatever somebody asks you never feel obligated to answer their question always tell them what you want to say all right i'm not talking about when you're testifying in court i mean this is if you're being interviewed by action news those are good principles to live by Uh, so the testimony of the lord uh to the simple what shall i do to be saved creation is a testimony telling us some things about the one true god The word of God is a further testimony from him we can be sure of to save him. We saw last week that creation isn't all negative. There are many positive things that it shares with us about God, but I don't think you can get a surety from creation that God has saved you or that uh, salvation is secure. That comes from the word of God. Verse eight, the statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. I see a note of grace in these words. God's statutes are not restrictive or stern, but rather they set your heart to rejoicing in living in a manner that will be pleasing to God. Everyone thinks that the Christian life, the religious life, is a burden, that it's all about things you shouldn't do. Most people think they have to clean up their life and then go to church. But Obviously, you know, as a Christian, you go to church to get your life cleaned up. And so the non-believer looks at Christianity and thinks that it's a list of mostly don'ts. But here it says that God's statutes, things that God says uh, maybe you should and shouldn't do, they're not restrictive or stern. They rejoice your heart. And so are there things you cannot do as a Christian? Sure, but you don't want to do them. Since you're a Christian, that's the whole idea. When I first got saved, there were a whole bunch of things I didn't do anymore and I was thankful that I didn't do them because I never really wanted to do them in the first place. I was a slave to them. They were sin in my life and I was set free from them. And so this is a wonderful uh, uh, experience in the Christian life to have our heart rejoice in his statutes. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. I got to thinking about that word, pure. I was thinking about the uh, Fellowship of the Rings in the movie where Gandalf gets to a place in the mines of Moria. He doesn't know which path to take. There's two different paths. And he says he has no memory of the place. And so he has to sit and think about it. And after a time, he decides. And the members of the fellowship think he has remembered. But he says, in effect, he says, I didn't remember. It's just that the air from that shaft is more pure always go with what is more pure. And so they head off in that direction. God's word sets the new convert on the pure path, enlightening the eyes to see clearly what is right and what is not right. If you got saved later in life, uh, remember how, how everything really was now black and white? Everyone was light or dark. I'm not saying there aren't gray areas in the Christian life or things to work out but everything seemed to really be illuminated in terms of the word of God and where God uh, was speaking to you and where you were headed and what you needed to do. Everything had a clarity to it because of the purity of his word. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. David adopts the fear of the Lord as a synonym for God's word. It would be like me saying, open the fear of the Lord to Psalm 19. Psalm 19. It sounds awkward, but if I had said that tonight, uh, you still would have understood that. And so the word of God, another name for it is the fear of the Lord. Maybe it's because Jesus is revealing himself on every page, causing a new convert to tremble with excited fear at finding him. Don't you get excited when you see Jesus in some especially Old Testament passage? We were talking about this the other day um, I forget with who because I'm old now, but we were having a conversation. And uh, some of this Old Testament stuff, uh, you think, wow, you know. first of all, you read it and you think, is that really in the Bible? And then you read it again and you think, what is going on? And then you read it again and God begins to show you how Jesus is being revealed to you through that text. And again, you, you get all excited. I think the, one of the very first Bible studies I ever heard, Don McClure was explaining uh, Abraham's sacrifice of Isaac on Mount Moriah. And I don't know that I'd even ever been aware of that. You know, it wasn't one of those big Bible questions I had because I'd never gotten that far actually reading the Bible. And nobody would ever brought it up to me in catechism as a Roman Catholic. And so it was a brand new story. And so I was thinking, wow, this is a weird one. And then all of a sudden, Don began to explain how it is typical of God the Father sacrificing his own son, Jesus Christ, in that same spot, only... He didn't stay his hand, he died in our place and on our behalf and then rose again from the dead. And I thought, man, this is fantastic stuff. I wish I had known this was in the Bible years ago. I would have been drawn to stuff like that. And so it was, it was an amazing thing to see Jesus in that story. I don't know if you've ever had people read criticisms of that, oh God you know, believes in child sacrifice and all of that. And they missed the entire point of what's happening in that story. Uh, and, and how Abraham had the faith to believe what God was doing. You're, you're not afraid to see the Lord in the word. You should tremble with fear when he is revealed. And so the word of God is the fear of the Lord to you. I think of it a little like play scaring someone. Do you, ever, do you guys do that? Do you like to scare each other? Play scare? No? It's fun. It's really super fun. I remember one time I used to do that with the kids. That's why Gene is so well adjusted. And... Uh, But uh, one time I went in, one of the routines we had, this was over in our house on Harrison, kids would get into the bed or they'd be brushing it anyway. And I would go and I would pray with each one, you know. And so I went into Mary's room and I was kneeling at her bed waiting for her to come in. So I figured she was still in the bathroom. Well, she was already under the bed and she let me wait there for the longest time and then she grabbed me and I just about jumped through the window. It was insane. Things under the bed, that's why Monsters Incorporated is my, f- my favorite Pixar movie. It's not the best Pixar movie, but it's my favorite because it just captures so well that whole childhood milieu of thinking that there are monsters in the closet or under the bed and covering yourself. Don't you love that? You get under the covers. You have some monsters coming to eat me, not if I'm under the covers. Uh, but anyway, so uh, you, you should. you have my permission to scare each other at home. And it's that kind of uh, feeling. All for joy. It's It's very joyous. The word is clean, or we might say it is cleansing. The new creature in Christ is blessed to have wave after wave of cleansing wash over him or her thanks to the sacrifice that Jesus made. It endures forever in its effect. I am washed. I am clean once for all. I might pick up defilement in the world. In fact, I do but I am white as snow in respect to my standing before God. It endures forever. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. While I am forever free from condemnation, God's word does pronounce judgments on non-believers. In one sense, I am thankful for that, knowing God will one day right all wrongs. And I can therefore be patient and endure my suffering at the hands of the wicked. Now, without seeming uh, cruel or vengeful, there is a sense that you have that justice needs to be done. Uh, the wicked really should not get away with their wickedness. Uh, and and you know, so it's not that you're looking at people thinking you're going to get what's coming to you. I mean, you would hope as a Christian that they would turn to the Lord and, and no longer be in that wicked category. But in the end, God needs to sort these things out. and and deal with those who have been in rebellion against him. Now, judgment is a big subject. The Bible is filled with judgments, starting with God's judgment on Adam and Eve and the serpent in the garden. Looking to the end, the revelation of Jesus Christ is definitely a book describing God's future judgments being poured out upon the earth. First, the breaking of the seals, then the blowing of the trumpets, then the pouring out of the bowls in rapid succession, terrible things that are happening on the earth as God is judging it. Believers are challenged all the time over God's judgments. Non-believers say, how can a God of love? That's how those challenges often begin. And they think it's an insurmountable task to try and explain how a loving, all-powerful God can allow evil to exist. Well, in answering, what you need to remember is that what we read here, God's judgments are true and righteous altogether. So you start from the point of view that God's judgments and the way he meets them out are true and they are righteous altogether. And not just because he's God. This is a very important point. I think you'll understand this. Uh, There's a famous line of dialogue between President Richard Nixon and journalist David Frost. I love it, it's so fun. David Frost asked about something being illegal And a former president, Nixon, says, if the president does it, it's not illegal. And you think, wow, that's incredible. He actually believed that. And that was his philosophy. If the president does it, it's not illegal. We sometimes think of God that way. There are whole theologies that point to some calamity or call something God's judgment and say, since God did it, it's not unloving. Uh, there are theologies that uh, overemphasize the sovereignty of God and, in essence, make God the cause of everything. Now, I've heard guys that are uh, respected, not, not crazy nut jobs, but respected theologians talk about hurricanes and tornadoes as the hand of God. Uh, that it was God's causing it in that exact way. Otherwise, the, you can't have a, a universe unless God is in control of every situation at every moment. And, and so basically, you would say, well, that seems uh, serious. And they say, well, but if God does it, then it's not, it's loving. And so they would, they would say, that if God is the cause of uh, Hurricane uh, Harvey or, or Irma, then it's a loving thing that he did. Now, if you did that, if you suddenly you know, became Storm from the X-Men and did that to Houston or to Hanford, uh, you'd be arrested, they'd, they'd throw you in jail. But if God does it, somehow it's not unloving. That's not good theology, that's not even good logic. If God seems to be acting unloving, it's no answer to simplify and say God is sovereign, it's like Nixon excusing himself. And so our answer to these questions can't be, well, God is sovereign, i.e., he can do whatever he wants. Sure, he can do whatever he wants, but he does whatever he wants within his revealed nature. God is sovereign, he's also love, and not just because he says so. An unloving action cannot be called loving just because God does it. So our answers to these kinds of challenges must be more biblical and reasonable. We must have a theology of God's sovereignty that allows man to exercise free will or else God becomes the de facto author of evil. Either God is the author of evil or you and I have limited free will that God can overrule and in providence still get his will done eventually, but he is not responsible for evil. And so that's kind of where we're at with this thing. His judgments are true and righteous. Take the revelation, for example. It is wrath, for sure, but it is deserved, and in it and through it, God's grace will continue to reach out and save. We called our series in Revelation, The Grace of Wrath, because every judgment was accompanied by a call to salvation. There are many warnings. We talk a lot on Sundays about the mark of the beast and current technology, an angel warns everyone on the earth during the great tribulation, do not participate in swearing allegiance to the uh, world leader or you will be damned. And, and so Nobody's gonna be taken, nobody's gonna buy iPhone 10 and suddenly by facial recognition be in the camp of the Antichrist and, and not know it. That was a little funny, I thought, but... Did you see the iPhone 10? It's fantastic. But anyway... His judgments are true and righteous altogether. Creation is God's word to all the unevangelized. It is a positive word. Here's what I mean, and I'll, I'll say what I mean by quoting a guy named Dale Moody. He said this It is possible to say that the general revelation of God has only a negative function that leaves man without excuse. But what kind of God is he who gives man enough knowledge to damn him? but not enough knowledge to save him. You see, when evangelicals talk about creation, they're hesitant to say that maybe somebody could actually be led to faith in God through something like creation. And so they say, well, you have creation, and so you're without excuse, you know there's a God, but the word of God never came to you, so you were damned all that time. And so this guy puts what we, what we think, what kind of God is he who gives you enough knowledge to damn you but not enough to save you? Why tantalize people with creation as a witness to people who could never be saved? It doesn't make any sense. Now, with regard to potential salvation of the unevangelized, you have one of three biblical choices. Universalism teaches that in the end, all the unevangelized will be saved. We would reject that out of hand. Second, there's something called restrictivism. This teaches that unless a human agent preaches the gospel, non-believers cannot be saved. And they would say that all unevangelized people are thereby damned. So that's, the, that's a, almost a majority opinion, not so much among evangelicals, but among uh, a lot of reformed theologians. It's like, unless somebody personally shares the gospel with you or with a person, they cannot be saved because they don't know the name of Jesus. They, they obviously haven't come into contact with that. Now, there's a, an option called inclusivism. We like that already. It teaches that the unevangelized have God's general revelation through creation, and those who respond to it can be saved. And in particular, they'll receive additional revelation, such as God's word through God's providence. Now, the thing is, if these were the only three possibilities, which one would you choose? Well, how would you choose? Well, which one sounds more like the God who said the heavens declared the glory of God and then pointed out how his follow-up with the written word could convert the soul? Well, that sounds like inclusivism to me. It sounds like the Lord is actually seeking people, that he wants them to get saved. Last week, we quoted Paul from Acts 17, where he said, hey, God is the one who scattered people out into the world precisely so they would seek him and be found of him. And so uh, we are inclusivists. Here's a quote. Hang with me on this for a minute. Inclusivists contend that all Christians are believers, but not all believers are Christians. They define a Christian as a believer who knows about Jesus Christ. Now, that sounds at first heretical, but think about it. You already think that some people can be saved without knowing about Jesus. You think that infants and children that are not old enough to, ha- to be able to reason or people with handicaps uh, in, or- in their reasoning, you believe that they are in heaven, don't you? I hope you do but they've never heard about Jesus. They have no idea who Jesus is. An infant doesn't. And so if you must be preached the gospel and make a decision for Christ, how is that person saved? Where is the exclusion that says that that's okay? And so we already believe that certain individuals go to heaven who haven't heard the gospel. The best examples, of course, though, are the Old Testament saints. Can we really call Job... A Christian. He knew next to nothing about Jesus. His whole theology was, I know that my Redeemer lives. That's all he knew. And we don't even know how he knew that. But he didn't know the name of his Redeemer or how he would be redeemed. And there's no place in the book of Job where anybody shares the gospel with Job. Yet he was certainly saved because he believed God. Job was a believer but not a Christian. How about Abraham? Was he the father of the faith in the strictest sense a Christian? No, but he was a believer. In fact, what did he believe? Romans says he believed God and God accounted it to him for righteousness. He believed God's promise that he would have a son past childbearing age. Again, it's, it's very interesting, these Old Testament guys. The majority of Old Testament believers had no conception of Jesus Christ's death and resurrection. Here's another way of saying this. We understand the Bible to be a progressive revelation. God reveals more and more and more and more about himself until by the end of the revelation, we have everything we need to know for life and godliness. But depending on where you put in at the Old Testament... These patriarchs and saints knew very little about God's plan for the ages, and they certainly didn't know the name of Jesus Christ. The inclusivist argues those who never hear the gospel may nevertheless obtain salvation before they die if they respond by faith to the revelation they do have. Here's an argument though, today we do have the gospel and we are called to the great commission. So isn't doesn't that make things different? These Old Testament guys sure but they weren't specifically you know brought the gospel the way we're supposed to bring it to people. And that's why I would say that somehow by his providence God will see to it that those seeking him, those who see him revealed in creation, will receive greater revelation through his word. There aren't perfect examples in the scripture, but I would cite both Cornelius and the Ethiopian eunuch in the book of Acts. We only have time for one, so let's take the Ethiopian for a minute. He had God's word, having purchased a scroll of Isaiah in Jerusalem, came all the way from Ethiopia, seeking God. How he knew anything about God in Ethiopia, we don't know. He came from there seeking God at the temple, didn't find what he was looking for. The Jewish religious leaders couldn't satisfy the needs of his heart, but he bought a scroll of Isaiah, figured he'd read it on the long trip back. It was their version of a movie on the plane. And as he was being carried along there, the desert road, uh, he was reading it. God had sent Philip down there just to hang out on the street, just to wait. He didn't know what for, but he waited there, and then God stirred his heart to go up and join the Ethiopian They had this amazing conversation. What are you reading? I don't know. I don't understand it. I need somebody to explain it to me. Beginning right with what he was reading at, Philip said, hey, I can tell you that Jesus is what that's all about. He's on every page of Isaiah, and he shared the gospel with him, so much so that the Ethiopian said, hey, here's some water over here. Let's get baptized. Philip baptizes him, and the Ethiopian comes up out of the water, and Philip is gone. He's been raptured to another location. Philip led him to faith in Jesus Christ and then the Ethiopian went home and we believe evangelized Ethiopia because later when the Christians go down there, they find that there are already believers. God, by his providence, brought greater revelation, in this case his written word, to a seeking heart. And so the Ethiopian was seeking God. He was genuine in his faith and God saw to it that he got further revelation. Cornelius, the centurion same thing God arranges miraculously for Peter to go and preach the gospel to him but even before Peter gets there we would say that Cornelius was saved based on his understanding at, up to the time so I don't, uh, you, you might object that the eunuch and Cornelius are rare and special cases but I would say that those are in the Bible as an example of the lengths God can and will go to to bring his word to bear upon seeking hearts I don't think they're isolated cases. I think they're in the Bible to remind us that God is at work, that he's not willing any should perish, but that all would come to eternal life. Not all will come to eternal life. As I said, we're not universalists, but we're not restrictivists either. I think many more people than we sometimes think will in fact be in heaven based on God's grace. Amen.